That is not to say that Bitcoin will lead us into a pacifist utopia in which any attempt at violence suffers metaphysical intervention by the spirit of Satoshi. That money can grant power is clear enough, as there will always be a clearing price for violent thuggery. But what will distinguish a Bitcoin standard is that power will not grant money. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. We have got a great read for you today. This is another one uh, coming from the Bitcoin Times edition four. Uh, and returning author, we've read so much by Alan Farrington on the show. Uh, Alan Farrington's and uh, Big Al's piece, uh, the Only the Strong Survive, on basically breaking down the philosophical and true value foundations and or lack thereof of the crypto and DeFi space or quote unquote industry, whatever you want to call it, um, is still one of my favorite, but they really just killed it with that piece and... Uh, Alan Farrington has a lot of other great, uh, uh, great pieces on this show um, that we've read and a couple that I think I have not covered. Uh, Wittgenstein's Money is a highly, highly recommended, the capital strip mine. But anyway, we're going to go ahead and get into a piece by him, again, in the Bitcoin Times edition four. Uh, this is the second piece, and I hope to hit the entire thing and just have like a audio that you can download for literally the entire Bitcoin times. And I need to reorganize this a little bit um, and make it available more easily, easily available on the website. So stay tuned. I've been kind of tackling that like 30 to 30 minutes to an hour every night um, while I screw around with my memes. <laughs> so uh, this one is uh, uh, titled the separation of money and state changing the course of history. And there's there's a really fun thing that I want to add at the end of this that this got me thinking about again. It's notes that I wrote like a year ago, actually. Um, but uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, before we do, let's go ahead and thank our amazing sponsors for making this show available. We've got the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Um, it is a great, simple-to-use hardware wallet for keeping your Bitcoin safe. We've got Swan Bitcoin. Um, which is a simple service to automatically purchase, automatically buy, and automatically withdraw your Bitcoin based on a set schedule and to your keys. Um, and then we've got the Fold card, uh, which is sats back. It is a debit card to get you sats back on every single thing that you buy. And lastly, the Bitcoin 2022 conference, um, which is the most epic Bitcoin conference that there is. Uh, happening in April. It is right around the corner. Get your tickets. Discounts and goodies for all of these services are available in the show notes, so don't forget to check them out. And I'll also have the links available on bitcoinaudible.com. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into today's read, and it's titled, The Separation of Money and State, Changing the Course of History, by Alan Farrington. Quote, 
I don't believe we shall ever have a good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of government. That is, we can't take it violently out of the hands of government. All we can do is by some sly roundabout way introduce something they can't stop. Friedrich Hayek The political economy of fiat is one of toxic bigness. Given fiat money exists only as the liabilities of state-licensed banks with politically preferential access to artificial credit, bigness in banking is rewarded by default, and bigness in business is rewarded by proximity to bigness in banking. The losses of both are socialized under the pretense of preventing financial catastrophe. Of course, the real catastrophe is the thumb on the scale against the small and the politically unconnected. Capital markets abjectly fail in their titular goal of creating a market for capital. They become instead political tools, whose politics, by the way, are anything but, quote, local. This is clear enough from the fallout of Operation Chokepoint, aptly named given the core premise of political capture. But the reasoning bleeds also into analyzing the architecture of the internet. Given the lack of native digital value prior to Bitcoin, online monetization has primarily been architected around the assumption of advertising, which of course means surveillance as well. Every action one takes in consuming online content is relentlessly spied upon as potentially valuable, while capturing and processing this value has enormous returns to scale, given that single such data points tell you nothing, but trillions can be mined for patterns that no human could identify. You cannot run an online business without appeasing those who have mastered this game, and who, surprise, surprise, have also been politically captured. Their bigness makes them targets for political capture, and their political capture keeps them big and makes them bigger. It is becoming more widely understood how Bitcoin fixes this, and in general encourages economic thinking along more local lines and heuristically warns against the interdependent and fragile. Energy markets are perhaps the most obvious example. Quote, toxically big is perhaps an odd criticism of the grid, given it is more of an economic miracle creating a clearing price for power, a necessarily transient economic phenomenon. And yet, Bitcoin allows detachment from this vast, costly, and systemically fragile infrastructure by allowing for the creation of a clearing price bought and sold only over the internet. On a long enough time horizon, we can reasonably hope that Bitcoin will remove the thumb from the economic scales. The small and the local will no longer be politically disadvantaged on economic terms, and the big will have to compete on even ground. But what of politics itself? Might we worry that a return to localism in capital formation and consumer behavior will not amount to much in the face of an overbearing state and a class of non-economic institutions and their parasitic constituents with the lingering fiat taste for the transnational? I think not. It is all well and good championing localism as obviously good, transnationalism as obviously bad, 
Bitcoin as obviously good and contrary to transnationalism, and hence, Bitcoin as a natural complement to localism. But correlation is not causation. My argument is stronger even than this. Bitcoin will cause localism, politically as well as economically. There will be no other choice. Toxic business in government will become every bit as unsustainable as in business. That is not to say that Bitcoin will lead us into a pacifist utopia in which any attempt at violence suffers metaphysical intervention by the spirit of Satoshi. That money can grant power is clear enough, as there will always be a clearing price for violent thuggery. But what will distinguish a Bitcoin standard is that power will not grant money. There are two reasons to believe this. The first is that Bitcoin simply cannot be seized by any force less severe than torture, and even then it is possible and will surely become widespread for any value worth protecting to render even torture obsolete. If you want Bitcoin, you will have to provide something deemed more valuable to its holder. The second is subtler and I believe is not widely understood except perhaps by the subset of Bitcoiners intimately interested in political history. A distinguishing feature of Bitcoin is that it is the first ever truly stateless money. Contrary to some naive Bitcoiner and even gold bug talking points, gold has constituted the base for specie throughout history, but has never acted fully and wholly as money. This historical observation provides an amusing afterthought to what I had previously described as the semantic theory of money, from Wittgenstein's money, that money can be and is defined entirely by an academic checklist and not at all by reference to reality. Something is money if and only if it fulfills, quote, the three roles of money, that is, store of value, medium of exchange, and unit of account. To economists enamored with this taxonomic vacuity, it doesn't matter in the slightest how something is being used in the real world. Quote, money is a semantic category, not an explanatory one. Curious, then, that in medieval and Renaissance Venice or Florence, these alleged, quote, three roles of money were each fulfilled by different objects or concepts, Elemental gold was the store of value, sometimes silver or bullion. Bank transfer via attested ledger alteration, tellingly called ghost money in Florence, was by far the most common medium of exchange. And the polity prescribed, that is government, denominations of coinage via the mint were the units of account. The reader might object that this itself is irrelevant semantics that allows us to escape the primacy and importance of gold and the gold standard. Quite the contrary. Elemental gold has a cost, indeed a very high cost. Nearly all human civilization across the world and throughout history independently arrived at the utility of elemental gold as a store of value. Because of the options... It was the highest cost and greatest scarcity, hence the weakest market response of increased supply to its premium as a store of value, hence the lowest inflation, and finally, 
the greatest monetary utility. Elemental gold approximates what Nick Zabo called unforgeable costliness, brilliantly anticipating contemporary pushback against, quote, wasteful Bitcoin mining, in shelling out, Zabo explains that, quote, At first, the production of a commodity simply because it is costly seems quite wasteful. However, the unforgeably costly commodity repeatedly adds value by enabling beneficial wealth transfers. More of the cost is recouped every time a transaction is made possible or made less expensive. The cost, initially a complete waste, is amortized over many transactions. The monetary value of precious metals is based on this principle. Even though the typical government monopoly on violence has across the years included a monopoly on the right to mint coins, or at the most removed a government-granted private right liable to be revoked at a moment's notice, it was never extended to a right to escape economic reality. Debased coins would be valued abroad precisely in line with their debasement. That is to say, not by their government-insisted fake unit of account, but by the true store of value of whatever unforgeably costly precious metals they contained. Foreign exchange markets kept government mints relatively honest, given economic feedback from seniorage allowed only the smallest windows of temporary benefit prior to longer-term and more extreme damage. Even when backed with such military might as were the Roman, Spanish, or British empires, for example, that we might think could overrule economic feedback essentially emanating from decentralized trade webs that could simply be co-opted, the essential cost of elemental gold still forced itself to be felt. Organized violence at such a scale has a cost. The greater the scale, the greater the cost. And in fact, the greater the incentive to maintain a gold standard effectively than to attempt to subvert it. While not a singularly causal factor, it is certainly not a coincidence that the three great empires just cited all collapsed more or less in line with the rate of debasement of their currencies in pursuit of economically destructive militaristic ends. But the fiat era created a dramatic historical anomaly. For the first time in recorded history, the cost of creating new money literally was zero. This has had profound effects on political economy. While money can always buy power, power could now buy money, and without economic calculation. There is no cost too great to seizing power, and next to no incentive to not give it a shot, because any cost can later be paid back and then some. This, I believe, is the root cause of the cult of toxic bigness now endemic across the developed world. Rather than a naturally homeostatic process of increased size leading to inefficiency, in the fiat era, the bigger you are, either as a business or a government, the more powerful you become. Hence, entirely perversely, the more efficient you become. Of course, the less efficient everybody else becomes because they are transparently 
being stolen from. The more communal capital is consumed, the more energy the capital consumer can direct towards seizing power and paying back himself, but likely nobody else. Bitcoin fixes this, and in a remarkably simple way. It undoes everything just described. It returns a cost to money, a higher one even than gold, and makes toxic bigness unsustainable. Hence, Bitcoin isn't so much explicitly a pro-localist tool. If anything, the reality is even more profound. Localism itself is natural, healthy, sustainable, and right. Bitcoin destroys the historically anomalous countervailing force, and in doing so will let localism happen without having a particular bias of its own beyond the far more abstract concerns for sustainability, efficiency, accountability, and truth, all natural bedfellows to localism. One way to conceive of the tragedy of modernity and its impact on the strip mining of economic, social, and cultural capital is perhaps that narcissism is artificially subsidized. Through subsidy, it is normalized, and through normality, it becomes a part of the culture itself and encourages its own championing and reproduction. From an artificial inception, it takes root and sustains itself as it drags the culture down. In The Culture of Narcissism, Lash points a way out of the nightmarish labyrinth. Quote, In a dying culture, narcissism appears to embody, in the guise of personal growth and awareness, the highest attainment of spiritual enlightenment. The custodians of culture hope at bottom merely to survive its collapse. The will to build a better society, however, survives, along with traditions of localism, self-help, and community action that only need the vision of a new society, a decent society, to give them vigor. The moral discipline formerly associated with the work ethic still retains a value independent of the role it once played in the defense of property rights. That discipline, indispensable to the task of building a new order, endures most of all in those who knew the old order only as a broken promise, yet who took the promise more seriously than those who merely took it for granted. Insufficient but necessary, Bitcoin provides such a vision. Let's build. Okay, that wraps it up. Let's go ahead and take a moment for our sponsor before we hit Guy's take on this piece. And that is the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. You know the one. It's easy to set up, intuitive to use. It secures your Bitcoin. And you guys, the listeners of the show, get 5% off with code GUY. The Bitbox is a hardware wallet built by Bitcoin developers. The whole idea is to make holding your keys more accessible to as many people as possible with as little a barrier. Um, and without compromising security. And I really think I really think this one found a sweet spot. Um, any of you guys who listen to the show know that I'm a huge fan. Like, I nerd out on all the hardware wallets in this space. I collect them, basically. Um, but my recommend, recommendation for the BitBox is genuine. I, it's really a good hardware wallet. I think 
Actually, I use mine more frequently than any of my others now, so it is my most used. Again, you can snag your Bitbox with 5% off using code GUY, G-U-Y, and make sure, and make sure do not buy a hardware wallet from a retailer. Always buy straight from the manufacturer. You can get there at Guy Swan. Swan has two ends, by the way. GuySwan.com slash Bitbox. Okay, so um, I really, really enjoy this piece. Any Anybody who's listened to this show for a minute knows that I'm a sucker for anything called the separation of money and state. <laughs> but one of the key ideas that he touched on in this piece that I think is just really, really fascinating um, and crazy to think how different it once was that this is actually a product of the fiat world rather than the product of actual market forces that it's that it is a historical anomaly that we have found ourselves in this very interesting monetary situation but that that dynamic that feedback loop is that money grants power obviously but in our current system power also grants money and that is actually unnatural that is actually something that has arisen due to the to, due to how money works today that has never been true in the past because money is a product of the political it is a product of authority it's in the name fiat the literal definition of it dictates that this is a product of political power which creates this poisonous feedback loop where power begets more money, which begets more power, and on and on. This makes the big able to grow bigger without actually being any better. That's a lot of Bs. But it, but it means that growth can occur without improvement, without better production, without actually being superior, but simply because the power that they gain grants them access to greater economic consumption. And again, unnatural consumption. Consumption that's actually not correctly priced. Consumption that's being hidden from the economic system. It's a bug. It's a flaw. It makes the powerful more wealthy and ever wealthier and more powerful regardless of any greater production or creation of value. It divorces the economic reward from the economic input, from the economic production. The only product of that is collapse. There is no other end to that. The economic system will simply die if you remove the correct economic incentives from its foundation. It's no longer an economic system. It's a political one. It is a, paras it is a parasitic system by definition. There is no other outcome. Collapse is simply the destination, period. The, the only question is which path do we take? Which route is the one that we ride on to find ourselves at the destination? There are a million different flavors of it, but they're all just vehicles of different shapes and colors traveling to the exact same place. Bitcoin changes this dynamic fundamentally. It removes one half of the feedback loop. Obviously, money still gets you more power. But power no longer gives you more money. The element of power in the creation 
in the creation and the dictation of the value of money is gone. Money simply is no longer a product of political power. That club that we currently see in the political sphere of corporate, of giant corporate institutions, of massive banking and financial institutions and political, political power where money is just free, where money is just a tool of what we want to pay for, of how the situation feels it needs, it needs money distributed, that we're just going to invent paper to cover over all of our mistakes and pay for our obligations. The complete removal of, mon of the money as a system to allocate real capital, but instead as a system to allocate political power, is removed. It's just not existent. Bitcoin is the same cost. There is no free lunch in Bitcoin. It's the same cost for everybody, whether you're massive or whether you're tiny. There is no cheap Bitcoin. In today's world, the corporate environment, the massive banking institutions and the governments have explicit access to create money that has zero cost. While everyone else has money that costs a lot, the difference is that they are fungible, that they get to print for free money that everyone else has to work for. It is literally unfair by design. Whereas money that is sound, that is equal before everyone, just by being big, just by being big, you don't get greater access to it. You have to be able to turn it into value. In fact, by being so big, you are far less efficient because you're not going to make a 300% return when you're already a trillion dollar computer company. There's, there's no 300% return in a short time left. You're too big. Whereas somebody who's making $100 can easily make a 300% return. And that's what he's, that's what he's getting at. Well, it's a, it's a vague uh, analogy of the principle that localism is actually more efficient. Responding in small, mobile, uh, agile elements in, with, with good design. A good design is something that can become massive. But a single institution that becomes massive is way more inefficient. That's why you didn't see like the, the idea of something, some apparatus that would be so big and so singular is such a rare thing in history. And now suddenly it's, it's the description of today. It's nothing but giant, big, singular institutions. It's like there's this whole weird economy of just massive behemoths that just consume ungodly amounts of resources and can't be unseated because of where they are. It's so hard to actually compete with them because they get access to the money and get to consume the resources before it's actually market price, before it's actually, it actually costs something. They, like, we just gave all of the biggest companies in the world trillions of dollars. And it wasn't trillions of dollars that were worked for. It wasn't trillions of dollars with skin in the game. It wasn't trillions of dollars of voluntary agreement. It was handouts from the money printer. Explain to me how any business that has to work for money, that has to produce stuff for money and has the limitations of, I can only bake this many pizzas at a time unless I get more capital. How can that company 
ever, that business ever compete with another business that gets free money to expand their capital, that gets to buy and raise the price of their stove so that they can't expand because they actually have to sell pizzas to do it. That is what runaway debt inflation, uh, creation and issuance of new money as debt does. It poisons the entire economic environment. I love that. I love that framing, though. That's such a great way to think about it, that because money is a tool of the political, political power gets you money. It literally gets you closer to the power that issues it from thin air. The, the literal cost of money has become zero. And of course, that means that the economic productivity, that the actual economic value is siphoned straight to the place and all of the people around the place where new money is created for free. Like, is that really a surprise? I highly recommend Alan Farrington's piece, um, The Capital Strip Mine. I will, uh, let me go ahead and write a note so I don't forget to put that in the sh uh, show notes. But um, uh, this one, I, I really like that one. Uh, I feel like uh, Wittgenstein's Money and Bitcoin is Venice um, got a lot more attention, but I'm really a big fan of the Capital Strip Mine piece just because it it talks about in, in kind of an abstract, easy, much easier to understand way, Essentially, how it is that the incentives of creating more debt and manipulating the price of debt put us in this environment where the farmer eats all of his seed in order to get the GDP, to get his local GDP as high as he possibly can, but by, do by doing so, completely eliminates any possibility of a harvest next year. It's the idea of consumption at all costs, and by trying to progress to, to have economic progress through the creation of debt rather than the creation of savings, what we are doing is we are incentivizing as fast as we possibly can in an ever exponential feedback loop more and more consumption of our resources faster and faster in, in an effort to chase the savings that we are, ver the very production that we are eating in order to, in order to have the appearance of growth. And this is all enabled. In fact, it's not, even, it's not even really that it's enabled. It's that it literally only exists. It's a, it's a corruption of the natural incentives that push against that very thing. That show us in an economic system that we have consumed too much and we need to start saving and we need to actually start producing and we need to save our seeds for next season, which locally and naturally is the incentive. It's literally just a corruption of that mechanism. But under a sound money system, there is no, there is no cheating. Every Bitcoin has unforgeable costliness, and you can't get a Bitcoin without unforgeable costliness. And by the way, if you haven't listened to and or read that piece, Shelling Out, The, the Origins of Money by Nick Zabo, um, that he mentions in this piece when he's talking about unforgeable costliness, you must. It's a it's a prerequisite. It is if there was required reading in Bitcoin to to pass the Bitcoin degree, Nick Zabo's shelling out would be in it. And it's also a great piece to talk about, or to kind of allude to, or that's not the word. Um, I guess enlighten the reality 
that fiat is such a anomaly, like Alan Farrington is talking about in this piece, that this is a weird time in history from a monetary perspective. We basically reached a modernization of the economy such that the, the physical security of money, that the gold that allowed us unforgeable costliness could not actually operate in this new abstract communication environment. We, weren't, we hadn't figured out, A, that we even needed, but B, we haven't figured out how to translate that critical, unforgeable costliness, that, that secure store of value that allows us to weigh and measure against all of the other goods in the economy, that allows us to cooperate in establishing what the collective value of these things are by the only mechanisms that allow it, the true skin in the game, the actual cost of everyone's productivity and skills that it took to produce a thing. In other words, real economic cost input and production must go into the establishing and the directing of the reward. Otherwise, the economy is not, is not actually directing resources to where things are produced. It's just directing resources to people who are close to politicians or cousins of this family or blah, blah. It's completely arbitrary, which means the economy stops working. It stops becoming a cooperative system that has a foundational set of rules equal for everyone. A system that makes sure resources go to making sure people get fed to maintaining clean water, to sustaining the community, to growing the things that make our lives better and diminishing the things that make our lives worse, to giving us more optionality and freedom in economic production and consumption and increasing general prosperity for everyone. And instead, it, it destroys that part of the tool and instead becomes a tool to direct economic consumption to those with political power. It allows the ownership of everything to consolidate into the biggest institutions and then redirects the focus of the world to gather around them and hope for a bigger portion of the next flood of printed money, while the economy itself becomes this meaningless, hopeless rat race of people trying to increase their, the amount of political tokens that they hold so that they can simply exit the class that's having to pay for everything by working and enter the class that's getting paid for influence and proximity to our masters. That is literally where we have found ourselves, and it is fundamentally built into the concept of our money. Bitcoin alters that by removing any political part of the monetary policy at all. There is no more free money for the politically powerful in a Bitcoin world. Now that's a grand general statement, but the... And obviously, there is always the money creates power environment. It's not as if there's not more influence for people who have a larger social sphere. It's not as if political influence goes away entirely. And it's not as if uh, economic influence or economic power doesn't mean you get to move or uh, do more with your capital in the world. Obviously, more capital means you can do more. But you now, but you are forced to get that capital in a far more restrictive way. You don't get that capital just because you're in the political environment or you're in the political sphere, but because you actually traded, you actually got it from someone who gave you their keys or, or excuse me, who, who signed it over from their keys to your keys. There is no cheating of the ledger. 
all the money has the exact same rules. But I loved Alan Farrington's. This just kind of made me laugh. So I wanted to uh, save the quote. It says, now this is not to say, actually I'll scoot back a well. So politically, as well as economically, there will be no other choice. Toxic bigness, bleh, toxic bigness in government will become every bit as unsustainable as in business. Now that is not to say that Bitcoin will lead us to a pacifist utopia in which any attempt at violence suffers metaphysical intervention by the spirit of Satoshi. <laughs> that money can grant power is clear enough as there will always be a clearing price for violent thuggery. But what will distinguish a Bitcoin standard is that power will not grant money. That's just such a, that is such a great paragraph in a lot of different ways. It made me giggle and it is profound. <laughs> now there is something that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I wanted to address before we close this episode out. Um, and it's more of a philosophical challenging because I think there is another, there's, there is an additional and very subtle thing that Bitcoin does in the challenge of removing the state from the money. Something that, that is occurring on a much more, um, on a mental level, on a psychological level in the kind of a fish doesn't know it's in what doesn't know what water is sort of way. And I think the best way, this is something that I had thought about like a year ago and I had kind of forgotten about it. Um, but for some reason, this kind of triggered that again. Um, but it was an idea, I think it was probably when I was reading about the printing press, which I believe was Turtemeister's piece. It was either Turtemeister or um, maybe it was Alan Farrington. Shit, I don't know. I don't, we've, we've read a couple of different pieces that have at least mentioned and gone, gone into the, the analogy between the printing press and the 16th century revolution and enlightenment. And then obviously Bitcoin and what I think is our current revolution and period of enlightenment that I will think will come out of this. I, in fact, I kind of think we're right in the middle of it. But I think the enlightenment and the printing press is a great explanation or a great example of how technology undermined a belief. Ultimately, I'm, my argument is, and I, I don't think this is really contested, but my argument is that the printing press ended the, or created the separation of church and state, or maybe enabled it makes more sense. It, it was the catalyst that, that separated the church from the political power, from the idea that they were the source of truth. So, um, and trying to get into why, why that is. So when, when literacy, which I think can seriously be argued is the optionality to think. It's before the printing press, essentially the only uh, scribes, the only people who were literate were in the church. Literacy and thus the interpretation of God, the very notion of knowing what the truth is, was monopolized by the church. Now, I've, I could obviously be told you know, what the Bible says or what my religious text says, or I can be told what it means by the priest or the, the, whatever the church authority is who is preaching to everybody once a week. Or if I am literate, I can read it myself. I can discern what I think it means. Or maybe I could read the interpretation of someone else 
who wrote theirs down, who, who read the Bible or read religious texts and wrote down their interpretation of it. And Jordan Peterson says that writing is the process of thinking. Now, a statistic around the, in this, in this piece on the printing press, or at least one of the pieces that I've read on the show, I cannot, I wish I could remember where it was. I'll do a general search, but I, I doubt I'll find it because I looked for this some time ago and didn't find it. But a statistic that really stood out to me, um, uh, I have to make up the numbers here just to illustrate what the statistic showed, but that over the 16th century, over the century of the, the birth of the printing press, the birth and the ubiquity of the printing press, the literacy rates, and I think this is in France because it, if I'm not mistaken, it was talking about the French Cultural Revolution um, uh, during this. But regardless, the rates went from somewhere incredibly low, like 5% at the beginning of the century, to basically between like 80 and 90%. Now, 90% seems hard to believe. I mean, the U.S. isn't even 90%, 90% literate today. But there's an argument to be made that we have a horrifyingly garbage education system. So I could also believe that 16th century France beat us, that they did it better. But for some reason, 90% sticks out to me as the number. And I remember finding it hard to believe when I read it at the time. So take that as you will. But regardless, it, neither number is perfectly precise. But I am certain that it went from the beginning of the century at a very, very small percentage to a rather shocking majority of the population by the end of the century. Now, how does that change someone's perspective and relationship to the church? They no longer have to go ask their priest what God says. They can read the book themselves. The church is no longer the monopoly on interpreting the laws of God, the truth of their religion. The explosion of literacy and the ubiquity of the printing press and just books in general opened up the mind of the individual and suddenly a dynamic that had been, that had seemed like a fundamental truth from the perspective of the everyday person, that the church was God's word, suddenly there was the word of God with or without the church. You could actually discover it by yourself. And I think from a philosophical perspective, from the position that the average individual was in relation to the church, it completely undermined the idea that the church was needed as a political power. It allowed, it allowed them to be challenged because no longer were they sitting in a place or it was sitting in a place in the mind of the individual in which challenging was fundamentally impossible, was fundamentally at odds with finding the truth. I think there is a similar fundamental belief and that is not very often directly addressed about government today. Not about truth and meaning, but about rights, about morality and basic human rights. Now, the United States, the, much of the Western world was built on the idea that rights are natural, but I don't think most believe it. Most still believe in the idea that, you know, we have roads because of government. If we didn't have an education system, who would, how would people be taught? 
that the government is just the source of these things. And I've had so many different debates and conversations with people where I'm trying to get down, even people who, like, you know, Republicans or people on the right, people who espouse the arguments of John Locke and Jefferson, like they have the talking points ready and waiting. But when you really beat it, beat it down to the fundamental principles, the things that they really believe, I have found over and over that if you get people to that layer of discussion, they will say that property is something that government grants, that you only have the right to freedom because the government lets you, or the right to free speech is because the government gives it to you. That the Constitution is not a restriction on the government, but that it is a list of things that the government gives to us, allows us to have. In other words, without the government, there aren't any rights. It is the system set up that artificially creates these rights that we want to have. And that's where I think we get the idea that, or the idea spreads that we just have the right to whatever is really important. Like we have the right to healthcare. No, we don't. You don't have a right to something. I've gone into this and done a whole guys take episode about this, but there's no such thing as a right to something that someone else has to give you. Like I don't have a right to a car because somebody has to make a car. Like the reason I know I don't have a right to a car is because I don't have the right to force someone else to build one. There is, there is no point at which you, you can't, those are fundamentally at odds with each other. I can't have the right to myself and my body and my time and my labor, and then at the same time, someone else not have the right to their self and their labor and their time. Like, we either both have them or it is not a right. But this is a little bit of a tangent, but this is the, the fundamental idea is that everything is chaos and there is no property, there are no human rights until the government sets up some system where we have them. And I run, in, I run into this all the time. It's the, you only have rights because of the government. We only have roads because the government builds them. When in reality, a right is derived from self-ownership. It is a natural and inalienable thing. I own myself simply because I'm the only one in my body. I'm the only one in here. Your brain doesn't move my arm. Only mine does that. I am born into this body and there's nobody else sharing it with me. That is where the truth of self-ownership comes from. That is the basis by which we decide humans should have rights because we have we each have this individual life and it is ours. It's the only one we get and we Nobody else is responsible for it. We are here. This is our body. This is our responsibility. That is the very foundation that we can argue that slavery is wrong. Without that as a foundation, without admitting and understanding philosophically that we own ourselves, our logical foundation against slavery becomes a utilitarian one, an arbitrary, oh, it's better, rather than a moral argument which is a horrifying place to be because you can make a utilitarian argument for all kinds of evil psychotic shit. So if everybody lives in a world where the government dictates all ownership, where the government can violate all property at will, that it can consume resources in value like like this planet-sized blob that just rolls over society and bends it to however it wants and decides who the winners are and who the losers are, well, it does. It does look like 
we only have rights because of government. They appear to be this giant thing that makes society exist because they run it like it's their own pet project, and there is no challenging it. They are the ultimate violator of rights, therefore they appear to be the source of our rights, just like how the church appeared to be the source of truth because they're the only ones who could read it. So how is Bitcoin like the printing press in this analogy? How does Bitcoin change this relationship? Because it is something that you can own completely and unequivocally without any recognition or permission from the government. You own it as a product of self-ownership by having a key, a secret that controls the ownership of your value completely and all by itself simply by ensuring that no one else knows that secret, you are proving that the right to property, real value that you own and control, is not a product of a government, but a product of the fact that your mind is yours and yours alone, that you are the only one in there, and if that wasn't true, someone would already have your Bitcoin. Someone would need to give you permission to keep that a secret. But they don't. You have it by default. As long as you are the holder of your key. What else in society really has that property? Has that property to the extent that you feel like you can own your house whether or not your government says so? Really? No, you don't. Obviously, you don't. That you own your car in spite of the government? They can't just stop you at the border? How easy, is, how easy is it to get a car across the border if the government says you can't do it? Do you have a job or a salary or anything else? What else do you own truly outside of the amount of gold that you can swallow? What can you easily own without permission from the government? I think it appears that government is the source of rights because they have such power to violate it. And Bitcoin changes that. Bitcoin changes the individual's relationship with their government. Suddenly, they have an option. They have the optionality of what money is. They have a property that they know and completely own without any cooperation from government. And in fact, maybe even in the face of government disapproval. I don't know. It was just an idea that I couldn't stop brewing around and I hadn't thought about it in a long time. Um, but, uh, I liked it. I thought it was, I thought there was a piece of, there was an element of truth in that and something really fascinating to unpack. Maybe, maybe Alan or Eric, it's kind of sounds like an Eric Kaysen idea. Sounds like something from his crazy anarchist sovereignty stuff. <laughs> uh, lots of good pieces by him. Uh, if you haven't uh, listened to Eric Kaysen on the show yet, but I think that is a, I think that is a piece of the separation of money and state because not only does this has to happen in does this have to happen in a physical sense does this have to happen in a when we're talking about the rules and the system itself but it also has to happen in the minds of the people like people have to realize that money is a thing separate from state and i think we don't have that we haven't had that for a century we have just it's been you know a water water is wet or the fish doesn't understand what water is 
because it is so prevalent, it is so obviously just the way things are, clearly money is a product of the state. Obviously, the organization, the manipulation, and the dictation of who owns what and how much and who gets to participate in the monetary system is a role of the government. That is what they do. They make money come into existence. They make property rights. They define what your property rights around money are. And Bitcoin fundamentally and completely changes that. And suddenly our relationship to them has, has shifted. And rather dramatically from a mental perspective. But anyway, this was a really great piece. Um, always a fan of Alan Farrington. Uh, uh, we're going to probably try to get through all of these, um, not back to back, but all the ones from the Bitcoin Times Edition 4. Um, I did, did I even say that? This is from Bitcoin Times Edition 4, the same thing that uh, uh, Bitcoin is a Pioneer Species by Brandon Quidham. Um, that was actually the opening piece of uh, this, this publication. And I think we've got like four or five other pieces. How many pieces are in this? We got one, two, forward. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. We got six. We've done two now. Uh, and I hope to get through all of them. We've got a lot of other reads and of the things that I'm finishing up and publishing this week. I'm really excited about. Going to be some fun stuff. So don't forget to stay tuned. Stay subscribed. Uh, this is Bitcoin Audible. A huge thank you to everyone who supports this show. A huge shout out to the Audionauts. I love you guys. And also our sponsors who support this show. We got the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Prove your self-ownership. By holding your keys, be the first step in the separation of money and state. Then Swan Bitcoin, where to stack automatically, get a computer to buy Bitcoin for you all the time. Uh, put your Allocate your ongoing earnings to Bitcoin. And the fold card to get sats back on everything. Get Bitcoin back with your purchases. When you, when you spend fiat, get Bitcoin. And lastly, the Bitcoin 2022 conference the craziest, most epic Bitcoin conference that there is uh, coming in April, 10% off with code GUYSWAN. All that good stuff will be in the show notes. I will be back here with another episode tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening. I am Guy Swan, And until next time, everybody, take it easy. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.